Welcome to Books, Stories, People, with me, Nancy Richards. Once upon a time, children listen to stories. Well, they still do. Hopefully they always will. But as they get older, children also read stories, and some even write stories. Writer-teacher Leslie Beek believes that listening to and reading and writing stories are key ingredients to growing a complete, enriched and enriching human being. Putting her beliefs into action, Leslie herself has written and published no fewer than 90 books, some of which have won and been nominated for awards, including the Sir Percy Fitzpatrick and Hans Christian Andersen Awards. Born in Scotland and based now in South Africa, all her stories are set in Africa, from picture books for the very young to teen novels, YA novels, and notably for readers for whom English is a second, third or even fourth language. But most importantly, she's passing on the skill because Leslie teaches writing both for adults and for children in her Writing Life courses. She's also one of the co-founders of the Children's Book Network. But you know, it's often assumed that writing for children is so much easier than writing for adults. So, is it? Not at all. It's much more difficult, I think. If you're writing for children, you have to be aware of many other factors. If you write for adults, adults will persevere with the book. They might pick it up, say, at an airport, and they will probably read some of it, at least. With children, they pick it up, and if they don't like what they see, they put it straight back down again. You also have to look at language levels so that you're addressing words in the story that they can understand, maybe challenge them as well, but make sure that they know what you're talking about or they will then again put the book down. The illustrations, if there are any, have to be age-appropriate and interesting and colourful and all those things or they will put the book down. So you're looking at a much more challenging market and you're also looking at the difficulty of presenting quite deep ideas in a way that the child of the age you're aiming at can follow and absorb. And the books that they read at young age, like picture books, are really important in forming their ideas of the world and in giving them moral values, expectations, not preaching to them, but giving them some... There's got to be strength in the story. It's much more difficult. Mm. So you're looking at fewer words... Uh, you're not doing War and Peace and you're not doing a trilogy, but the words all, each one, have to be effective. So it's not just a responsibility, it's whether or not that book's going to have any eyes on it, because if it's not, if it's not done properly, it's not going to work. Yeah, children are very critical. I, I imagine. However, I'm sure there are a lot of grannies and even parents and great-grannies or great-great-granddads who say, oh, I've always told my children lots of stories, I'm going to write a book for my grandchild. Uh, which seems like a laudable thing to do. But I imagine that there's quite a difference between telling a story and writing a story. Mm. Uh, yes, and I, I, I commend the grannies and grandpas who write the stories. I think it's a wonderful thing to do. And the children who are able to experience that have a, a, a whole other insight into books and stories. We began language by telling stories. They're critical to the development of all children and what's in the stories is critical to the way they think. And if they get those stories from people they love and trust, it has so much more impact than a book they get as a gift in a nice wrapping. Um, but having said that, I work a lot with people who have written for, for their grandchildren and want to, they want to publish. They'd like to be um, 
the new Harry Potter, they, they're thinking in terms of series. They often mention the word series. And I think in all writing, we should look rather first at enjoying what they write and enjoying what they read to the children and not thinking in terms of publication. In, in that sense, you alter the whole ethic of the writing. You're writing to a market. You're writing to what you think will sell. And to be quite honest, it's very, very difficult to break into those things. Rather write it for fun. Read it to the grandchildren. If somebody sees it and wants to publish it, so much the better. Or publish it yourself. But don't aim at that from the beginning. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of books published every day. You can't compete with them unless you are something exceptional. Well, with World Book coming up on April the 23rd, uh, where everybody, there will be a big focus on books, I think it's interesting that you say many, many thousands of books are, are being published all the time. But they are, here in South Africa, they're not published, children's books are not published in any huge quantity. I mean, you yourself have published how many books? 90 and counting books for children. Mm. The print run, I imagine, runs into the hundreds rather than the thousands. Yes. And that's the key factor that people don't know. People will say to me, but there's so many new books in the shops. But it's possible to print 100 or even 10 and see how they do. So a publisher or a self-publisher can do that. Try it out. If it works, they publish the rest. When I started in writing about 35 years ago, the, pub the print run was normally about 3,000. And that was expected to be sold. And if it sold well, they could reissue the book. Now, I don't know, no one tells you, but they are very, very much smaller print runs until they see, and until with children's books, the education department, if it's looking at books at all, um, decides if they might publish it, or, or, or rather not publish it, use it with children. So, yeah, you're looking at very small print runs. The, the, when I started writing, I was told that every year, 6,000 children's books were published in America, and about 4,000 in Britain. Well, that was then. Now nobody can count the number. It's hundreds of thousands because people publish them independently. They publish with Amazon. Uh, and then there is this huge industry that publishes small numbers of many books. So it's a different market altogether. Hmm. So competition is fierce just listening to what you were saying. So yes. let's put that to one side, because let's come back to what you were saying. If you're going to write a child's book or a book for children, enjoy it, because that would be key to the child enjoying the book. So where do you start? Do you start with the content? Do you start with the pictures? Do you start with what's what, with 90 books under your belt? Where do you start with each and every one? Usually with landscape. Mm. I think landscape to me is the most important element of books that you can quite easily get over to children. So if, even if I don't, you don't describe it, it's not a case of the, the color of the sky and the moss on the side of the oak tree, but you have to have, as the writer, a very clear picture of where you are and where the child is going to go in that child's imagination. I like to say to writing students who come to me and also to children, that somebody who writes a book has to use their head and they have to use words that they've learned and all those mechanics of it. But a real story doesn't come from their head, it comes from their heart. And that story has to go through their head, down into their fingers, type into a laptop or whatever you're doing, and then it has to go from that stage into the head of a child 
And if you are very good, and if the story is very effective, into that child's heart as well. Mm. If a story moves a child, then you have succeeded with that, and it's hard to do. That's quite a journey. That's a very visual journey from mm. your heart to your head to your fingertips to the head and heart mm. of that child and the soul of that child and the memory of that child. Memory, yes. Because how many of us who've been lucky enough to be brought up with books can say, oh, do you remember, I don't know, Winnie the Pooh, Peter Rabbit, mm. whatever, um, it, you know, and those, those books stay with you. And they're still on the top ten. The BBC or New York Times does surveys to find out which books are most popular. And there's still those classics like uh, Can't You Sleep, Little Bear in America and Winnie the Pooh because they had some magic about them. And you have to have magic in the story. I don't mean literally like Harry Potter magic, but the magic of that process we've just described. You mentioned Harry Potter a couple of times there, and I see J.K. Rowling is just about to release her latest book, whatever it may be, and we wish her well with that. But so content is one thing. So you, you start with landscape. It's very often said here in South Africa, where so many children have not been exposed to books, that there should be books that are written in the landscape that they know. In other words, mm. the village or the town or the city or the backyard that they are familiar with so that they can relate to that book. On the other hand, there's a feeling that the thing about books is that it transports you into somewhere that you've never seen and it will grow your mind. Which school of thought do you come out on? Well, both of them. I work a lot with children who are not book-centered, who don't have books, who've not had books read to them, who are deprived of a very essential thing, which is books and stories. And both of those are necessary. I think you can go too far on either side. You can bring everything down to the level of um, this is your village, this is where, you used, where your granny used to draw water, and you can make it so much a local story that they lose the ability to imagine things. But the thing that we find with children is that they may be able to read. I work with mostly 10, 11, 12-year-olds. And we have in that group, that age group, a huge range, an embarrassingly huge range of reading abilities. Because some of those children can barely read. A few of them read quite well. But most of them lack the ability to take ABC, which they do learn, almost all children that we work with, are literate in the sense that they can recognize ABC. And I like to tell the story that they can, they can decipher A, and then they can decipher C-A-T means cat. But they can't make the jump from that to a small furry animal. So if you start describing a, a beautiful Siamese cat, that you've lost them by then in, in their own reading. But the big difference that we always have to take account of is the difference between reading aloud to children, which is what should happen a lot, and them reading themselves. So the children we work with, and I run an organization called Children's Book Network, which aims specifically at that age group, which gets very little attention elsewhere. What we try to do is interest them by reading aloud to them and then giving them other reading which they can focus on themselves and read quietly to themselves, and a range of levels so they can choose and not be disadvantaged by not being able to read uh, the specific texts. And then they write about the topic so that they interpret the stories and their stories into words as well, and they see the process 
I think writing and reading has to go together. And then they illustrate the stories because art also is part of the process. Mm. I'm just going back to the village and the water drawing, etc., mm. etc. And it may be it may be very local for the children who are in that situation, but a book like that would introduce the village and the water drawing to the city child. So yes. I suppose there's yeah. The, 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 the big key here, or the great key, or the huge key, is that there should be a variety and there should be a choice. And when children are, if a book is imposed on them by, for example, an education department, the understanding is that they will learn to read with that book. That is impossible. They need a library of books, and they need the freedom to say, I don't like this one. I don't want to read about the village. I want to read about people, children in other places, or I want to know about snow, or I'm very interested in wolves. They need to have that kind of, of imaginative choice. And imagination is what they never seem to be able to learn because they are restricted. I'm talking now about the children in South Africa who are not exposed to books. Mm. They are restricted in their vision and in their imagination. You know, we're talking about cats and wolves and things like that. I'm just thinking that so many children from a very young age in this country of all backgrounds are exposed to all sorts of awful things, uh, not least television, but things that are <laughs> happening in their streets, outside, things that they might hear on the news, uh, things that are happening in school, awful things like, like bullying, difficult things like drugs and sex and all these things. Uh, how do you handle those as a child, uh, if you're writing for children? Do you address it? Do you gloss over it? I mean, we're talking now about slightly older children, but that 11 to 12-year-old group, they know about these things. How do you deal with it in their books? I think you have to accept that they know all about it already, more than we do. They know about sexual abuse. They know about drunkenness. They know about drugs. They know about HIV AIDS. They know about everything because they see it in their communities. And to try and write for them in a kind of sanitized way, again, they will put the book down and they'll say, this person knows nothing about what our lives are like. But I think you also don't need to dwell on those things too much and you don't need to be, make them the motivation for the book. If you're writing a book with the idea of educating young girls about the possibilities of sugar daddies, for example, if that's your purpose and aim in life, you're going to be concentrating on that too much and not looking at the story. But if it comes into the story, and many books do this very expertly, they address the issue, but not in a dogmatic way and not in a talking down to the child way and not in a with agendas way. It's just an acceptance that that's there in life. And you can do all of those things in one story. You can bring in imagination. You can bring in uh, the idea of a book taking you to another place out of your own environment and at the same time acknowledge what that environment is. Those are all very scary things for, for kids, you know, the bullying and the drugs and the crime and the drunkenness, etc. For a younger group of children, a lot of things are scary. Um, you know, the, the monster books where they like, oh, you know, they, they love to be scared, but at the same time, you don't want to be giving children nightmares. How do you deal with the, the dragon factor that's, that's a, a friendly dragon and not a, you know, a, a monster with 
you know, the straw Peter type of thing that's going to freak yes. them out. As many of the, the old stories were terrifying mm. and weren't actually designed to be told to children at all. They were for adults. I think the best example of that is uh, it, it's certainly uh, Sendak's Wild Things because that book is beloved of children. I have a picture where you don't see me in the picture, but I'm reading the picture aloud to three 10-year-olds and their expressions are classic. They're just absolutely gobsmacked by these, these wonderful wild things. They're interested. They want to know what happens. They don't look frightened. They are, the wild things are not very frightening. They're actually very endearing, although they have the, the, the costume of wild things. But the thing that makes that work is that the child is not frightened of them at all. He puts on his crown, and he's the king of the wild things, He's in control. He knows what's going on. He's not frightened at all, and he has he has fun with them. So the purpose of the wild things was different from frightening children. It was to to tell a story, and when he goes home, his supper's waiting for him. It ends safely, and they roared their terrible roars. I remember it well. Mm, it's a lovely book. It seems like you have to be, or perhaps you've arrived at this point by dint of having worked as you have. Um, it's something of a child psychologist. You know, one has to get into the mind, then the heart of the child before you pick up the pen or the mouse or whatever. And to do that, I imagine that you need to do quite a lot of research. Mm. And to do that, I imagine you have to do quite a lot of listening because what would you know about what 11-year-olds or even 5-year-olds are experiencing in their life unless you go and find out. How Do you eavesdrop? How do you do it? Oh, yeah. Writers eavesdrop on everything. They're yeah. always sitting in cafes listening to other people. But you've mentioned my favorite word in this connection, which is listening. I firmly feel that children in this country and elsewhere, but we, I can't speak for them, are not listened to enough. Uh, people think they know what they need, know what they like, know what they want, or else they have their own agendas in deciding what that might be. And when we work with children, it's not in a school environment, which is different, and I'm not being critical of schools. They have other things to do. We provide, we do workshops where children can be free to read what they want, tell the stories that they want to tell themselves, write the stories they want to write themselves, and to a certain extent, direct what happens. So we listen to them during workshops, we assess what they've done after workshops, and we we try to see where they're going. And an example of that is recently we had a workshop with children we've worked with for five years. And after the, the pandemic, we haven't seen them for a year. We had a small workshop where 25 were invited and 43 came, and we had to turn them away, which is a terrible thing to have to do. Mm -hmm. And those children have changed. They've, they've been frightened. They've been cut off. They've been... There's been no, not no, but a lack of stimulation. And we have to start again with those children and work from the beginning because their, their eyes are just not reacting to what we were doing. And we had a lovely workshop with colors and they painted and they did all kinds of things. The reaction from them was very muted and we can see they're very depressed. So everything that happens affects children as much as it does us. And I spoke to somebody recently who said, oh, they'll recover. They're, they're, on, they're only children, was what he said. And that just makes me very angry. They're not only children. 
they are children. It's mental instability or mental ill health starts very, very young before yes. when, it's, when it's still invisible. Language, I think, you mentioned language as being very important. You've got to use the sort of words that they understand and yet at the same time give them words that, that are new, that are opening up new things. Um, and in this country, in many countries around the world, we're looking at second, third and fourth mm -hmm. English language speakers. Uh, translation is a whole other story in its own right. But language, uh, how does one deal with that and how important is it? I, I imagine that you're perhaps only writing in English, but how is it important is it that children are reading books in their mother tongue? I think it's critical, especially in the first three years of school and previously that they're read to and told stories in their homes, which is an ideal we don't always reach. We, when we work with children, we work in English because when they have reached grade four, which is the beginning of the, the work that, that I do, they are taught in English. The other reason is that they need English increasingly as they grow older and they're taught scientific subjects in English for obvious reasons. They have to learn English. The second point which surprises people is that they actually understand English very well. I've given workshops to children in northern Limpopo and places that you wouldn't, rural areas where you wouldn't expect much in the way of English skills. But I have to give the nod to television here. They watch television. They hear English spoken, albeit American English sometimes, all the time. And they, with the speaking of English on television, they see what's happening. You know, if somebody's getting divorced, they watch it. So they understand the meaning of the words in the context. And much of television is fairly simple English anyway. So we're working from a platform that's actually much higher than is expected. Mm -hmm. So they must, must, must have mother tongue reading in their younger years. But that is not the focus of what I do. I write in English, and I think the, the answer to how do you choose the words, they have to be direct. You could teach a child of 12 the word perspicacious, for example, but is there any point in, in that? When are they ever going to use that word? And children everywhere learn the names of the dinosaurs instantly. <laughs> and they're difficult words. And they can spell them correctly. They well, can draw them in anatomical detail. Certainly the global pandemic would have told them, given them a whole new vocabulary of lockdown and pandemic mm -hmm. and all these mm -hmm. other things. Just This is quite a difficult one, but we hear so much about how poor our children here in South Africa are for reading for meaning. And I think that one of the things one would like to encourage is reading for pleasure. You know, obviously, academic learning, it, it's reading is essential, but reading for pleasure is what will grow a child. Yes. And that's something that is a difficult balance. You know, I can only really talk from personal experience, but the personal experience is of hundreds of workshops. We work with nonfiction as well as fiction, and I think that is also one of those key things. Read aloud and read alone is one of the big divisions in reading and non-fiction and fiction is, is the other for children. And particularly boys, I don't want to be sexist here, but boys who are not that keen on reading will read non-fiction. And when we present them with non-fiction that is interesting, that has interesting illustrations, that might start them reading, and then they look to the stories that we also provide. So if we're doing, if the theme of that particular workshop is, let's say, um, the sense of scent, 
we might present them with some non-fiction and then some stories and then some specially written material and then they do exercises where they, you know, we, we, it's integrated experience, mm. in other words. Oh, I want to come along to one of your oh, children's workshops. <laughs> They're fun. Yes. Uh, and I come back to the, this idea of teaching children to write their own stories, which you've alluded to a couple of times, and that would give them the opportunity to, a huge opportunity for so many things, to look at things that they had not thought about, use their creative, their imagination, etc., etc. Do they take to it? Do children take to it? We can't stop them. Mm. We usually do, we divide the workshops into three groups so that they rotate. Whoever is the last group, we have to just about tear the pencils out of their hands to get them to come back and do some more stories. They love writing. And I, I can't understand the great interest in it, but they love to write. And over across the board... If you give and we give them pieces of cardboard to write on, so it's not a bit of A4 scrappy paper, and we give them cokey pens and we give them nice materials to work with, and they will sit there and write for as long as you give them. Have you got any J.K. Rowling's up and coming that you? Not really, no. Not, not yet. <laughs> no, the big um, barrier that we we have to always break through is the imagination. Mm. First of all, they will copy from their neighbour, so we give them different. They have cards where they they get a different topic and then they have to write their own thing because they have this innate belief that whoever's next to them is cleverer, prettier, and a better writer and it's best just to look at what she's doing and copy that. But um, the, the, the jump for children from writing down something like, I am a boy, I am 15, I have a dog called... that sort of thing. The jump from that to writing a story is quite a big jump. And we haven't got there yet. You have, however. You've been hurdling, jumping over hurdles <laughs> all your life in terms of writing. And I think you, you, do, you do the children's book network work and you give children these courses, but you also work with adults. Yes. That must be very interesting. It's a lot of fun. It's fun because it's not prescriptive. Um, I have a writing course. It's in 10 parts and it deals with 10 issues that I think are important in writing for children. But I've never done a writing course. I've never actually been to a writing course. So it's written by me from my experience and what I like to do. And what I find when I give the course, because I give it as a practical course as well as it being available online, is that the people who come are so interesting and exciting that we end up going off in, at tangents and we use the course as a kind of kind of, well, let's get back to work again. But often they bring up ideas that change the way that we do it. And we then, they then go home with it and they've got the... And this is bones. teaching adults to write for children or is it teaching adults to write anything? You know, it's called writing for children. It's called writing life. And I think that's really what it is. We said earlier that it's perhaps more difficult to write for children because of the issues of them not paying attention to something they're not really keen on. But writing is a skill. It's not, it's not something that comes down with the daffodils like Wordsworth wandering in the Cotswolds or wherever it was. It's something that you learn. It's something that you, you, you can hone. And it's not that difficult to start. It's difficult to keep going. And that's, I think, where a lot of would-be writers, they start off and then they, they haven't got time. They haven't got the right place. I wish I had a room. I used the example of white curtains and Mozart playing in the background. And the reality is that the kids are having to do their homework and the supper's not made. 
if you want to write, then you write. I had one student who came to my classes and she brought her novel with her, a novel for teenagers. And every exercise and thing that we did, she used her, her protagonist in her story. So if we were writing about an experience, she would write about the experience as he might have experienced it on the Cape Flats. It was fascinating to watch her do it. So the course is so open that we just, we work around what people need and what people want. Well, if anybody would like to write and they would like to know more about your course and they, and they would like to know a little bit more about the Children's Book Network, how can they get in touch? Well, they can contact me. I've got my website is lesliebeek, www, etc., lesliebeek.co.za. And my cell phone number I can give you is 082-6464-420. And the online course is available everywhere through White Rabbit Sauce. www again, white rabbit sauce, one word, dot co dot za. We have to repeat those because Leslie is S-L-E-S-L-E-Y-B-E-A-K-E dot co dot za. And White Rabbit Sauce is White Rabbit, S-A-U-C-E. Right? Thank you. Yes. Lovely. Very last question, Leslie, before I let you go. And there's so many more questions. Have you got a new book on the go? Well, I have. You know, for a while I stopped because I was so busy writing material for the workshops. But I'm writing one at the moment. It's called Zeb, Superbook Hero. And it's about a boy who, well, he is a superbook hero. He starts off by observing the beginning of stories. And then he gets his superpowers together and he ends up by addressing the United Nations about the importance of children's books. So I'm enjoying him quite a lot. I look forward to that so much. Leslie Beek, thank you. Thank, thank you, Nancy. Once upon a time, children listened to stories. Well, they still do. Hopefully they always will. But as they get older, children also read stories and some even write stories. Writer, teacher, Leslie Beek, believes that listening to and reading and writing stories are key ingredients to growing a complete, enriched and enriching human being. Putting her beliefs into action, Leslie herself has written and published no fewer than 90 books, some of which have won and been nominated for awards, including the Sir Percy Fitzpatrick and Hans Christian Andersen Awards. Born in Scotland and based now in South Africa, all her stories are set in Africa, from picture books for the very young to teen novels, YA novels, and notably for readers for whom English is a second, third, or even fourth language. But most importantly, she's passing on the skill because Leslie teaches writing both for adults and for children in her Writing Life courses. She's also one of the co-founders of the Children's Book Network. But you know, it's often assumed that writing for children is so much easier than writing for adults. So, is it? <laughs> 